Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Director of Policy at Independent Women's Forum and your host for today's Working for Women podcast. Today, I'm here with Dr. Randy Tobler, a board-certified and practicing OBGYN and CEO of Scotland County Hospital, one of 1,300 safety net hospitals in the country serving rural, often poverty-stricken patients. Dr. Tobler is also the host of The Randy Tobler Show, a Saturday morning radio show based in St. Louis, Missouri. Today, we're going to be discussing a very important topic, the opioid crisis in the United States. So, Dr. Tobler, thank you for joining me today. Hey, it's my real pleasure to be with you, Hadley. Thanks for asking me. Of course. So first, I think many of our listeners are going to be familiar with the term opioid crisis or opioid epidemic. It's been making headlines. Uh, This August, actually, President Trump declared a national emergency related to this problem. But can you give us some, um, you know, description of what this problem really looks like? What's going on? Is it, you know, what's what's the degree? Um, Should we be worried? And, And what's what does it really mean to say that we have an opioid epidemic in the U.S.? Yeah, well, opioids are morphine-related sub, uh, substances, and we have really now, I think, uh, really um, reaped the, the ravages of, of many government policies, availability of some long-acting opioids, uh, prescription medicines that came around in the late 90s in response to um, a drive to treat people's pain better, patients' pain and it has now just spiraled out of control. It's really been a perfect storm with uh, government, uh, well-intended folks, uh, patient advocacy groups, doctors and nurses and the you know, medical community wanting to treat pain better. Um, and uh, so it's, it's really become a perfect storm that's resulted from um, uh, over-prescribing, in many cases, of prescription uh, narcotics, things like hydrocodone, oxycodone, and some of their long-lasting uh, versions. And then that is now um, spread into the illicit community because those are becoming um, more and more expensive on the street if people can't get them from their doctors. And now heroin in some jurisdictions is cheaper. And so we're seeing a resurgence in you know, what we saw back in the 1930s and 40s with the terrible heroin epidemic in the mid-20th century. So it is, uh, it is really a crisis. And just to give you, to put a little, you know, human flavor on the thing, 91 deaths per day, and that includes prescription and uh, illicit narcotics and opioids, uh, is what the CDC estimates, uh, the, the kind of toll that this thing is reaping on us. And that probably is underreported. But uh, it's resulting in emergency room visits, uh, greater than 420,000 emergency room visits from the misuse or abuse of opioids. Um, and in the, in the last uh, 15 years or so, we've just seen a spiraling. There's been really a fourfold increase in uh, opioid prescriptions. Um, there's, there's enough opioid prescriptions out there, Hadley, for every one uh, adult in America to have more than one bottle sitting in their medicine cabinet. That not only means trouble potentially for them, depending on the dose and how long they use it, but also for children who may get into it, um, sometimes by accident, sometimes not. So it is, as you said, a, a national emergency, and Donald Trump uh, declared it so. And it's good to see because it, it's an equal opportunity um, problem. Uh, it's called opioid use disorder, and OUD is a, it's just an, it's a, it's an equal opportunity. It doesn't uh, have a predilection for inner city, rural, suburban. Uh, you know, men and women are affected, uh, and now increasingly we're seeing children and uh, sadly the neo dates born to some moms who are hooked on opioids, uh, they, they suffer the withdrawal symptoms when they cut the umbilical cord. So I remember I, I was sitting around with some of my friends one day and 
we decided, I don't know if this was an activity we decided to do for fun, but we looked up causes of death in the United States specific to our age group, because I guess we wanted to know what the real risks were. And uh, the number one cause of death for people in my age group was poisonings, as described mm-hmm. by the CDC. And I guess that would that would include uh, overdose related deaths. Right. So that's pretty that was pretty shocking to me when I found out just how just how big of a problem opioid addiction and, and deaths related to opioid addiction have become. Now, I want to talk more specifically about something you mentioned, because at IWF, we do like to say that all issues are women's issues. Um, but of course, issues can have different effects on men and women, especially uh, with regard to health care. And uh, you mentioned that opioid crisis is taking a toll on um, women who are in the midst of a pregnancy, causing some newborns to have this withdrawal syndrome. So as an OBGYN, can you tell us more specifically about the impact on women's health, um, prenatal care, and the neonatal care that, uh, that women and babies might need to receive? Well, we know that one of the risk factors for opioid dependence, and let's assume that what we're talking about here mostly is prescription opioids, and then, of course, they're stepping stones to the to the illicit ones. But what we know that um, one of the risk factors for overuse of opioids and, frankly, getting dependent on them in the first place is um, associated mental disorders, psychiatric problems. And we know that those are more prevalent in women, anxiety disorders, depression. Uh, that's just the national statistics. You pile on top of that the very difficult time that women are having these days trying to be moms and wives and workers and, uh, oh, by the way, carrying a baby. And, you know, the stress that is now put on top of women is just tremendous. I see it all the time. I've been in the business almost 30 years. And uh, as women try to juggle an increasingly complex society, and now, of course, with the technology that has made everything, it seems, on, on warp speed in terms of the, the rate at which we live our lives, you can see how there's a collision here. And um, many women, you know, have a difficult time juggling all this. And in, a, in an atmosphere where um, doctors are increasingly, because of, often because of government policies, and we can talk about that later, um, are um, graded on how well we uh, treat pain, and those things are reported nationally, and in some cases up until, uh, well, until January of this year, they'll be rewarded or penalized based on at least partly the patient experience um, as it relates to pain. And you have a lady who's suffering, and she's having the, the regular back and tummy and hip and knee and all the kind of pains that go with pregnancy, and you can see how doctors want to relieve pain. Patients want to have their pain relieved. Many of the alternative methods for treating pain, such as uh, physical therapy um, and cognitive behavioral therapy, some of the non-prescriptive um, methods, um, are not covered in many cases by the Medicaid programs. And large, vast numbers of women are covered uh, you know, by Medicaid programs throughout the United States. So what happens is women will either, in some cases, enter into a pregnancy already with an opioid use problem or sometimes end up using them for very legitimate, what start out for legitimate reasons, but because of the nature of these things, they tend to use more because uh, they get tolerant to them. And then, so that can then, you know, becomes a problem for mom because it's difficult to taper and reduce these things after mom gives birth and she's sleepless, sometimes uh, maybe not a full-fledged postpartum depression, but, you know, maybe just those baby blues that are more common than not after a baby. And you can see how that's a very difficult time to taper and try to curtail the problem if it's developing. So you have that problem for mom. And then on top of it, babies, 
uh, when they, uh, you know, when the umbilical cord's cut, then, of course, they can develop neonatal abstinence uh, syndrome or withdrawal syndrome, uh, which can be problematic uh, for even community hospitals to deal with. And sometimes these babies really, really get into some trouble and they need specialty care. So as with many problems, uh, you know, even though the numbers may affect men and women in similar ways, the, the impact on women, particularly in this case, can be just devastating. That's, it is devastating. It's tragic to hear about um, how this epidemic is wrecking so many lives, even newborn lives. But um, I want to talk about some of the things you've already touched on, um, but I want to be more specific about how did we get here? What are the factors that have contributed? Because this seems to have, you know, it's really become an issue that everyone's talking about today, but I don't remember several years ago us being in, in a similar situation. So how did this happen? How did it happen so fast? It seems like there's been a surge in opioid abuse. And you mentioned some government policies and even the Medicaid program. But be more specific yeah. and tell me in your, you know, diagnosis, what caused this, sure. uh, this terrible thing to happen? Well, you know, in most things in medicine, we look for a, a unifying cause. You know, if a, if a person comes in with a cough, we don't want to give them pneumonia and tobacco and uh, asthma. You know, we look for a unifying cause. But in this case, there's what I call the trifecta. Um, first of all, uh, back it started in the mid-90s, mid to late-90s, and there was a real push to make pain a vital sign. You know, we talk about blood pressure and pulse and respirations and so forth. But then you remember, if you've been in the hospital or anyone who's listening, they, you know, you remember maybe you, you see this little um, chart with a smiley face all the way to a frowny, uh, crying face. And, you know, you're supposed to tell the, the nurse or the doctor, where are you on this? Or you're asked, is your pain a 1 or a 10 or somewhere in between? And so it became a vital sign. It became part of the, the general medical record. And that really has become a, a, a fixture in, in the medical history taking. And so pain became much more of an awareness in the medical community's mind. And, of course, patients became aware of that as well. At the same time, and, and really continuing till this day, um, the government and commercial insurers and even some um, employers who employ doctors, and now 60%, 70% of doctors are employed, but as that evolved, um, there were sticks and uh, carrots and sticks that were associated with how well or not you treated pain. And uh, in the recent government program uh, through the ACA, through the Obamacare program, um, you know, hospitals uh, were penalized if they didn't provide a great patient experience through questionnaires that were mandated by CMS. And a portion of those questionnaires addressed patients' pain. And one of the questions was, for instance, during this hospital stay, how often was your pain well controlled? The answers were never, sometimes, usually, and always. And the way these things translate into payment for hospitals or penalties, I should say, um, and in some doctors' contracts, bonuses or not, were if you, if you get all fives on these types of questions. Well, of course, doctors being perfectionists and hospital administrators wanting not to lose a certain part of their payment from the government – you can see how when someone comes into the emergency room asking for pain medicine, there's, a, there's, a, there's an incentive for people to give pain medicine and to assume that the person is not a drug seeker, that they don't already have a problem. And so that's been part of the problem, sort of the push to treat it as a vital sign, treat it well, make sure that your patient is always satisfied because they're going to be filling out a survey. 
I mentioned this to Claire McCaskill in a recent uh, trip I took to D.C. She wasn't aware of this, and I think the senator and other uh, policymakers probably aren't aware of the impact this has on on behavior, which then can translate in the long run, at least partially, to these kind of problems. So I don't want to put it all on that kind of a government program. But but also um, we have to think about the pharmaceutical companies who were many. Uh, there was a, one of the large pharmaceutical uh, companies. Three of their executives pled guilty to to essentially. Um, Mis mismarketing and faulty advertising about the addictive potential of things like the extended release and the long-acting ones. One that comes to mind that people have heard of is OxyContin. And so there has been litigation. Many states are now investigating, and several states have sued. There's dozens of states and municipalities and, and other jurisdictions who have sued one or more drug companies. So this is turning into um, you know, a, a tobacco litigation versus 2.0, and it could result in, uh, in a lot of money coming in for treatment and for some remedy for this problem. So you have this trifecta of pharmaceutical companies producing and marketing new opioids starting back in the 90s research and advocacy groups criticizing the medical community saying, hey, treat pain better. And then policy people saying, if you don't treat pain better, your patient's going to have an opportunity to let us know that you didn't. And voila, you're going to get dinged for it. So you can understand how these things would conspire to lead to the problem we have today. Absolutely. And I think you're so right that so few people realize um, what's going on behind the scenes in terms of reimbursement and the way that different surveys are used to, um, you know, rate doctors and hospitals. And that makes a big difference when, uh, when, for example, the Joint Commission says this is our policy, then hospitals respond to that very strongly. Or if the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have a policy, then that's something that uh, universally hospitals will, will respond to, even if it's just the, the environment that, uh, that doctors are practicing in. Um, but I well, want to ask... Talk, I talked to someone recently who said, well, hey, the, the direct penalty for these three questions that direct pain and on part of which incentives or penalties were based... Um, you know, for hospital payment on inpatient hospital stays, uh, they're no longer going to, they've changed the questions to be more general and they're not going to uh, credit you with a, with a, with a bad survey response. You, you know, but I said to this person, I said, yes, but there's this transparency initiative and these questions are still going to be put up on government websites like hospital compare and other things. And I said, so the brand suffers. So again, there's this push for what I call the commercialization or the retailization of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, if someone may come in with a, an analogy would be if someone comes in with a viral cold uh, and they want antibiotics, you know, that's another tension. Well, that exactly. patient's going to get a survey. Do I give them the antibiotics or I don't? So the human behavioral response to government policies is something I'm not sure that um, policymakers always consider very deeply. I think you're you're absolutely right, but I know many listeners are probably getting depressed thinking about the opioid epidemic <laughs> and how bad it is and, and how we've gotten into this mess, but um, my last question for you is I, I hope we can end on a positive note uh, because like a lot of people, I'm thinking, well, what can I do? What, what can I do to be a part of the solution? What is the solution? And I imagine the solution um, because the way the, the, the factors that contribute to the problem are varied and there's not just that one root cause. I imagine the solution maybe uh, involves not just policy change, but some cultural change as well. But I, I want to know your opinion. What is your, your professional uh, doctor's opinion about how to fight back against this crisis? 
Well, I think, first of all, there has been a big push throughout both from the federal and from all of the states um, and many of the professional organizations to educate doctors. And I think that's getting out to patients, too, either through doctors or through other initiatives that, you know, both the dose of the prescription as well as how long it's prescribed for really correlate highly with the likelihood of becoming dependent and also educating the types of patients who may have pre-existing risk factors, things such as young age, uh, things such as other substance use disorder. If a person is known to their physician to maybe be dependent on uh, something like Xanax or an anti-anxiety medicine, even folks who are depressed are going to have a little higher risk of that use of uh, you know those kind of medicines. And so educating docs and the public as to the, the kinds of things that would put one at risk for, for becoming dependent uh, is, is one. The other is alerting docs and, again, patients to the fact that in many cases, especially for acute limited pains, such as post-op pain, acute uh, non-surgical pain, maybe with a fracture or you know, a minor injury like that, um, there are other alternatives. I mentioned behavioral therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy. And, um, and for chronic people, chronic pain folks. And by the way, our our conversation really applies to non-cancer, non-end-of-life palliative type care. We're talking for people who have back pain, headaches, other things, uh, arthritis that won't go away. There are the, the, the cognitive behavioral therapies are important, exercise therapy, physical therapy, getting the right mix and using it the right way, non-opioid prescriptive and non-prescriptive things. Things like um, acetaminophen is very effective. So are some of the over-the-counter things like ibuprofen and uh, naproxen. And then there's prescription versions of those too. So looking at other alternatives and educating doctors and the public are important. Giving prescribing guidelines, which have been now uh, uh, released by both professional organizations the federal and state uh, jurisdictions. And then finally, what's really been helpful to help doctors not encourage, unknowingly encourage this problem is our prescription drug monitoring programs. And they're really in all, in 49 of the 50 states. My own state of Missouri does not have one, but all the rest do. And that gives uh, practitioners the option, the, uh, the uh, ability to Take, and take a look at what kind of prescriptions the patient has been getting. Have they been doctor shopping? Have they been pharmacy jumping? And that way they can put a, a, you know, a little handle on it. And finally, giving first responders over-the-counter options and uh, pharmacists the option to administer naloxone, uh, which is available as a nasal spray, and it's an anti-opioid that can avoid death and really prevent deaths when people have had an overdose and they've stopped breathing. So we have all of these things that I think are helping, and in fact, opioid prescriptions are down in the last couple of years. So we're beginning to uh, beginning to turn the turn the tide. That's great to hear. This has been a, a very educational edition of IWF's Working for Women podcast. We especially want to thank our guest today, Dr. Randy Tobler, for his uh, generous time. I know it's hard to, to, to get time with doctors these days. I know a lot of patients feel that way. I feel that way being married to a doctor. <laughs> but uh, if you're interested in listening to uh, the Randy Tobler show, we encourage you to tune in. Um, you can find it online at 971talk.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the opioid crisis and other issues that we cover at Independent Women's Forum, check us out on the web at iwf.org. That's it for today's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.